0: Hello and welcome to episode number 90 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi and I'm joined by Tony Pauline as always to give you our thoughts on what we saw during week six of the college football season and break down what to watch for this upcoming weekend as well. But first, we didn't talk about LSU and Utah State on our last show, but we've been driving the Jordan Love train for a while now and Tony, you've even caught some flack lately for saying that scouts think he could still be the top quarterback selected in next year's draft. Some obviously hopping off the love train after Utah State got crushed in Baton Rouge. But that's a mistake, isn't it, Tony?
1: I think what happened is there were a lot of people who saw Jordan Love for the first time, uh, really haven't done much work on him, uh, primarily people on the outside. And just it just fell off of that one game. And it was a bad game. There's no doubt about it. He, there's no way to stick up for it. He couldn't move the offense. They couldn't get anything going. Uh, I believe their first score was the result of, if I remember right, uh, the result of a Utah defense uh, turning a turnover. Uh, and then I, I thought there was a chance for Utah State to claw their way back or at least make the game close towards the end of the first half, and he threw a bad interception. He just underthrew the receiver. Uh, so there's no denying that he did not play well. But you know, I was thinking when I was watching that game, I remember Josh Allen. The first game of his junior season was against Iowa, and it was a sort of the similar hype in the sense that big name junior quarterback from a ironically small conference, the Mountain West. A lot of people had not seen Josh Allen play as a sophomore, and there were people like me who were screaming and yelling about Josh Allen. And Josh Allen did not have a game, a good game against Iowa. He just struggled playing in the pocket. Uh, he had a lot of uh, passes dropped. It reminded me of that game. And people immediately fell off of Josh Allen, second-round pick, whatever. And, what, Allen was the third quarterback taken that year, was the ninth selection of the draft. I mean, he's still developing in Buffalo. They are having it on their way to a good season, or in the early part of the year they're having a good season. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's a huge mistake off of one game, off of one poor game, uh, you know, just to forget about Jordan Love.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that game you're referring to with Josh Allen, he was 23 of 40 for 174 yards, no touchdowns, two interceptions. He averaged 4.4 yards per attempt. So yes, it was a bad game, but his team was completely overmatched, just like Jordan Love's team was completely overmatched here against LSU. And maybe in a past year when LSU didn't have the offense to keep up and put lots of points on the board, it could have been a slightly different game. But Once they didn't come out hot, that game was just going to continue to get away from them. And we talk all the time about supporting casts. And we talked a couple of weeks ago when we were discussing Daniel Jones about watching him against Clemson and watching him just get pounded into the turf and just getting back up and showing the leadership qualities that you wanted to see. And Jordan Love flashed in this game. There are certainly things that you can see from him that you're like, that's why people like him. But in the end, he didn't play well. His whole team didn't play well around him. And while that's not a good sign, while you would love to see him elevate above and you know take on LSU single-handedly, it's just not realistic in college football. People want to look at you know a game between the Patriots and the Redskins or the Dolphins and the Patriots or something like that. The difference in talent between Utah State and LSU is far larger than any difference in talent between the worst team and the best team in the NFL. And people all the time in the pros want to talk about people having a bad supporting cast, why doesn't it apply to college too?
1: Well, and the thing is, is that LSU secondary and a couple of those guys and that, that defensive back seven are literally uh, NFL ready. They're going to be starters uh, next year, in 2020, uh, in the NFL. They're going to be high picks in the 2020 draft. Grant Delpit, who I we've gushed over on this podcast. Christian Fulton, who isn't even having a great year you know, Kerry Vincent jr. And then there's Derek Stingley. I mean, the true freshman who's playing lights out, who, you know, already looks like he's going to be a very early pick because he's a uh, top NFL prospect. So it's not that they were just overmatched, but they were overmatched by NFL quality prospects.
0: Absolutely. And we'll move on here to some other reviews from week six. We'll start with the game. We spotlighted last week, which was Michigan state at Ohio state. This one ended 34, 10 Buckeyes. Not that surprising. Justin Fields had three touchdowns, J.K. Dobbins, 172 yards on the ground and a score. Overall, Ohio State ran for 323 yards. Coming into the game, Michigan State hadn't even allowed 300 total rushing yards coming into the game. Now, Dobbins showed off everything that we already know about him, his ability to turn the corner, his burst, his quickness. He runs with power. He's got excellent vision. 67-yard touchdown for him in this one. It wasn't a breakaway speed type of touchdown. He broke a couple tackles and ended up getting to the house. It was after kind of a slow start. He was averaging maybe three yards per carry or so until that long one. But that TD pretty much put the game out of reach at 24-10. The guy that was impressive up front for the Buckeyes was tackle Thayer Munford. Solid strength, showed good push in the run game, has the range to seal off on reach blocks and get to the second level. Tony, did this OSU dominance on the ground against such a really good run defense surprise you at all?
1: It did, especially when you consider the somewhat inexperience of the Ohio State defensive line. You know, you you said in relation to J.K. Dobbins, it was a bit of a slow start. That's because the Michigan State defensive front seven really kept Ohio State at bay early in the game. I mean, they were playing mano a mano with them. They were, you know, they were were trading punches. And then what happened was, as you saw midway, late in the second quarter, all of a sudden the Ohio State uh, offensive line, just took over the game and just dominated. And that really, from that point on, midway through the second quarter, through the rest of the game, Ohio State scored 24 points in that second quarter. I mean, it wasn't even a contest. Uh, I was surprised the way that the Ohio State offensive line really dominated what is a talented Michigan State defensive line. Raekwon Williams you know, finished the game with eight tackles, but he really didn't have much of a, an impact. Mike Panasiuk, who I grade as a late-round pick, he played relatively well, one sack, three tackles floss and seven tackles. but I mean, some of the other guys, Naquan Jones, three tackles, Jacob uh, Panusiak, uh, he had three tackles. Kenny Wilkes, again, you know, seven tackles, but a lot of those tackles were down the field after Dobbins had uh, broken through the line of scrimmage, and there they they were tackles after the fact. so I was a little bit surprised. I, I think I don't know if I was disappointed in the Michigan State defense, but I was very surprised and very impressed with that Ohio State offensive line.
0: Absolutely. And on the other side of the ball, Chase Young, a bit quiet in this game, especially early on going against Tyler Higbee, did have some pressures late, started to make an impact once Michigan State was forced to abandon the run, and he could just pin his ears back and rush the passer. Guys on the second level like Malik Harrison and Baron Browning, a couple potential day two linebackers, really showed off their speed and athleticism. Jeffrey Okuda kept Cody White down. Daryl Stewart, though, a guy we've discussed several times, did have a solid game. The only complaint with him is he's struggled with drops in this game. He has nine drops through six games this year, so that's something that we're going to have to keep tabs on him for to make sure that he can clean that up. But he also showed some explosive breaks out of his roots. He's slippery after the catch and really adjusts nicely to any balls within his catch radius, whether they're low, high, behind him. He can make the adjustments. Got the best of Damon Arnett and Sean Wade at times, two guys who were going to be top 100 picks eventually at some point. Tony, did anything stand out to you when the Spartans had the ball?
1: Well, Daryl Stewart's drops did. Uh, That was a little bit disappointing. And and there's a guy who, you know, I have a difference of opinion with scouts. They graded him as a priority free agent. I have him as a six-rounder. But those drops are not going to help his draft stock. I I did think, except for the few times that he beat Arnett, I thought Arnett, Damon Arnett, the cornerback, really stood out for uh, Ohio State i grade him as a uh, second-round pick, maybe late first round, depending on how he uh, works out. Even without uh, without the big numbers, without the big production numbers, Chase Young is just such an impressive athlete. The way he moves about the field, the speed, the quickness, the explosion, the closing burst in a straight line as well as laterally, you can see he's slowly starting to develop, getting physically a little bit more mature, a little bit stronger. But that sheer athleticism, if he really fully transitions into a complete football player, defensive end, uh, watch out because that guy has got a huge upside.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's times where he literally just runs off the edge and gets past Tyler Higby several times in this game. He doesn't even have to put a move on. He just runs the arc and gets around and just shows off that unreal speed and burst, like you mentioned. Um, you know, he's, he's a guy that we want to see more from him against the run. Absolutely. But at the same time, if you're going to impact the passing game that much and you're going to get that many pressures on opposing quarterbacks, it really doesn't matter that much what you do against the run.
1: Yeah. And it's not just up the field. I mean, I saw him multiple times making plays in pursuit laterally to get out to the flanks, you know, to get to the action. And, and you know, it's, it's not a matter of him just pinning his ears back and rushing up the field out of a three point stance and exploiting a, uh, you know, a college tackle. It's the ability to change direction and really uh, pursue the action with, with tremendous speed, whether he's moving up the field in a straight line off the edge or, you know, basically making a 90 degree turn and running
0: laterally. Now, we looked at Oregon-Cal ahead of last weekend's game. The Ducks end up winning this one 17-7, but they were down 7-0 at the half. They had three first-half turnovers. Two of them were fumbles. One of them was a bad interception from Justin Herbert where he was just laid over the middle. And as the expression goes, when you're laid over the middle, it's going to cause trouble. And Ashton Davis was able to close for the interception there as Oregon was driving in Cal territory. They only scored their first touchdown. In the second half, with a short field, their second touchdown, almost half the yards on that drive came from penalties. So overall, just a sloppy type of game from Oregon. Kerbert was 20 of 33, 214 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Kind of uninspiring performance. He was consistently throwing behind his receivers, wasn't throwing with anticipation. And obviously, the Cal secondary, which we've talked about several times, does deserve credit between Cameron Bynum at corner and Jalen Hawkins and Davis at safety. But in this game, Herbert looked more like Cal quarterback Devin Modster, the backup filling in for Chase Garbers, than a future number one overall pick or even a top five pick. Tony, what do you think of Herbert's performance in this one?
1: You know, you said uninspired. I mean, that, that's the perfect term. You, you, you just think, you know, down after down when he couldn't move the team, you know, you wonder what's going on. He doesn't show that killer instinct, he doesn't really show the ability to carry the team on his shoulders. The stats were very ordinary. Granted, to his credit, he came through late in the game when Oregon needed him. But I thought there were a lot of opportunities early on where he could have basically put Oregon out in front for good and put the game away, uh, you know, in the first half. Uh, He just never seems to do it. And, you know, it just too many times when Justin Herbert's the quarterback, it's a contest when it shouldn't be a contest. Or, as we saw earlier in the year, they're leading Auburn late and he just can't win the big game. And that's been a criticism of his that we've mentioned on this podcast. You go back to the Washington State game a year ago. You know, you compare him to Tua Tagliovoa, and we say that he can't come up in the big spot. Well, the big spots in Tua Tagliovoa are the SEC title game, you know, the final four in the college playoffs, the national ch- championship game. And the big spots for Justin Herbert are regular season games against Cal at Washington. And Granted, he did come through in the cow win. It just seemed to be much more of a struggle than it really needed to be.
0: Yeah, and I mean, he always just kind of leaves you wanting more. I mean, they ran the ball a lot early in this game. Instead of attacking with Herbert, instead of coming out and saying, you know what, we're going to give this guy the ball, and he's just going to dissect a good secondary. Does that say something maybe about the coaching staff knowing that, hey, you know what, Justin's really talented, and this guy's a good football player, but – we need balance on offense and we need to help him more than he's going to carry us. And that's kind of the knock that we've been talking about a little bit.
1: I, you know, I don't know because I'm not in that coaching room. I, I, I think the, the coach that they have there, Mario Cristobal, runs a balanced offense and he's not going to put it on Justin Herbert's shoulder. So I don't think it's a situation where they're going more towards the run because they're disappointed in Herbert or he's shown the inability really to carry the team on his shoulders or come through in the big spots, uh, you know, could also been the fact that, you know, you mentioned that Cal secondary, which is a relatively talented one, uh, which is why they ran the ball so much. I think that's just crystal balls coaching style. And you know what? It's a good thing because Herbert's not like, you know, I hate to be redundant has not shown the ability to carry this team on the shoulders when a lot of, you know, you think he should be able to.
0: Absolutely. And one guy who did seem to do some things on offense really help Herbert out as his main guy is tight end Jake Breeland guy. We also mentioned last week, he was finally kept out of the end zone this week after he had three straight games with at least one touchdown, but he had five catches for 87 yards, had a 30 yard catch up the seam that set up that go ahead touchdown showed some ability after the catch as well, making people miss. He's had four or five catches in every single game this season. So he's been extremely consistent, even as Herbert has been up and down, in addition to some of the big plays that Breeland's put on film, and he's over 15 yards of catch as well.
1: And he doesn't do a bad job as a blocker. I mean, he's primarily a move tight end type of pass catcher first, but when they ask him to block, You know, he he gives effort. He blocks with solid fundamentals. He's just got to get a little bit stronger because he is a tall, thinner guy. And really what Jacob Breeland is doing is what Justin Herbert isn't doing, and that's taking advantage of his opportunities. I mean, Breeland was not the starter last year. As we talked about a couple of times on this podcast, and I I believe he was a week two riser in my riser slider column over at Pro Football Network. You know, uh, he's a guy who, who didn't start last year. He's a guy who moved into the starting role. And as you said, is produced every single weekend. One of the reasons that Justin Herbert that was floating around there why Justin Herbert returned to Oregon for a senior year was that his brother was a five-star recruit at the tight end position. And Herbert wanted to go back to school to throw passes to his brother. His brother can't get on the field because Jacob Reeland's playing so well. And, you know, he's basically developing into a, an overall uh, tight end. As I said, during the college football game day blog, I think right now he's, fasting, he's rising faster than any senior tight end. He was a guy who came in, was given basically street-free agent grades by scouts. I liked him a little bit better because I saw the flashes in 2018, and I thought if he only got the opportunity, you know, he could produce and really show himself to be not only a good athlete, but a good football player. So far, so good. If he keeps it up, we're going to see him in a postseason All-Star game, and Breland's going to get himself invited to the Combine.
0: Now, our final review from week six takes us to Boulder, where Arizona went in and beat Colorado 35-30. to Khalil Tate returned from his one-week absence, and he did it in a big way, 31-41, 404 yards, three touchdowns, one interception. Unfortunately, that stat line is a little bit deceiving. He missed some throws. His ball placement was a bit inconsistent, even on his completions. But overall, it was a step forward for him, even though Colorado was really leaving receivers wide open all game, and Tate just was able to pick them apart. His counterpart on the other side, Steven Montez, 28 of 42, 299 yards and one touchdown in the losing effort. LaVisca Chenault was sidelined in this game, but Montez really focused on Tony Brown, who has stepped up big time with Chenault out most of the past two games, nine catches for 153 yards and three scores versus Arizona State last week, 10 catches for 141 yards this week, really giving Montez a go-to guy without his go-to guy. Montez, though, this is a nice job keeping plays alive in the pocket. He keeps his eyes downfield. He's also limited turnovers. Well, this year didn't have any in this game. So I'm still impressed with what I've seen of Steven Montez, even if it isn't kind of the flashes of upside that we may have expected. We're seeing a little bit more consistency from him.
1: We're seeing him stay away from the mistakes. But, but again, it's sort of a Justin Herbert situation where – You know, he's not playing poorly, but you expect a lot more from him. You you know, you think that he should be playing at a higher level on a week-in, week-out basis. Basically, you you thought that he should have played at the level Khalil Tate played at during that game because Tate played wonderfully. Now, you know, we got to see, is this something that Tate, he can get the momentum going in his direction or is it just the exception to the rule? Because, you know, one thing about Khalil Tate is he's very athletic. He's got a great upside, but he's incredibly inconsistent. He'll have a game like he did against Colorado where he plays lights out and he leads the team to victory, and then he'll have two or three stinkers like he did the beginning of the season, especially that game against Hawaii.
0: Kind of sounds like what we used to say about Steven Montez, where he's flashing massive upside, but then you have the downs that come with it. Whereas this year, it seems like Montez really isn't flashing that same level of upside, but the consistency is there. So as you said, you kind of want to see Montez go for a big game or two the rest of the way here, just to confirm that that upside is still there while avoiding the downs, in which case we can look at it as a positive for
1: him. But I still think with Montez, and I'm a big Montez fan. I mean, he's a guy that on this podcast, we spoke about You know, when we started this podcast a year ago, I just think that, you know, you said with Justin Herbert, he leaves you wanting more. And I get the same kind of vibe every time I watch Steven Montez. He'll make a lot of passes that, you know, you will drop your jaw because they're so fantastic. And then he makes other plays and you're dropping your jaw saying, what the heck was that? You know He's, he's got to pick it up. There's no doubt about it. He came in the season. Scouts created him as a seventh-round pick. I had him as a third-round prospect only because I knew of his upside. I knew what the best of Steven Montez was. I just don't see him. I agree with you. He's not playing bad football, but he's not playing up to his level of ability, which I think is going to hurt him come draft time.
0: Now, flipping it quickly to the other side of the ball here, there are some interesting linebackers on each of these teams. Colin Schooler from Arizona eight tackles in this game, six solo, one for loss. Nate Landman on the other side for Colorado, 12 tackles, all of them solo, and one tackle for loss. Both guys are ranked in the top 10 in the conference in tackles. Schooler's a guy, does a nice job working his way through the trash to find the ball, takes down ball carriers quickly at the spot. Landman, similar in a lot of ways, very good discipline. He's a sure tackler, always seems to be around the ball, a guy you really don't see take plays off. Preseason, we had Landman as a fifth-rounder and Schooler with a sixth-round grade. Anything from this game or the season so far, Tony, that has changed your thoughts on these two?
1: No, I thought it was a good game by Landman because Arizona likes to mix it up, and he's known more of a uh, as a uh, in the box two down type of linebacker. I thought he showed a little bit more versatility in this game. Lamman versus Schooler are two different types of uh, linebackers. Schooler is more your undersized run and chase pursuit type of guy, where Landman is more of a you know inside of a three four type guy who is going to be more of a two-down defender uh, that doesn't cover a lot of area. Now, Colorado's got Oregon this week. So we talked about Jake Vreeland before. Now we're talking about Colorado now. We're going to have to see how Landman, as well as Davion Taylor, who was uh, well-liked in the scouting community, the, the outside linebacker, some smaller, small and chase guy, as well as Michael Anyu, do against that Oregon offense. And Jake Vreeland, that is a Friday night game. Um, so that is a game to keep an eye
0: on. Now, I'll get to a bunch of Week 7 previews in just a minute, but before we do, please support the draft analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave us a rating and a review, and if you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Trapoti, at Tony Pauline, and at Believe Podcast to get in touch. Now, a couple weeks ago, we noted the matchup between Clemson wide receivers and North Carolina's Miles Dorn in the secondary. That game ended up being pretty close, too. Obviously, UNC was a two-point conversion away from taking down Clemson. This week, the Tigers play Florida State. It's another big spread, 27 points, but there's still some intrigue in the passing game. Obviously, we're going to be watching T. Higgins and Amari Rodgers. Justin Ross, too, for 2021 draft purposes. We're going to be watching this trio go against the Florida State secondary, featuring Levante Taylor and Stanford Samuels. Taylor's a guy who isn't particularly big or particularly fast. Perhaps realizing this FSU kind of has him playing more of a hybrid safety role this year, much like they did with LaMarcus Joyner several years ago, already has more tackles and the same number of interceptions as he had last year. Seems like he's really taking to his new role nicely after struggling with some back issues in 2018. What is this season and this new role done for his draft stock, Tony?
1: You know, Levante Taylor, He's too inconsistent. He's got average size. He's got average speed. He's a flash player, a guy who makes plays once in a while, but there's just not a lot of consistency to his game. I know there were some people who talked about him being a second-day pick. I had him graded as a seventh-rounder. Speaking with scouts, they had him anywhere from a mid-fifth-round grade to a priority free agent. He's just a guy who really doesn't seem to put it together. And he is the type of guy with that Clemson offense with those receivers those underclassmen receivers Amari Rogers and, and T Higgins never mind Travis Etienne you know who can basically take it the distance anytime the ball's in his hands it, this is the kind of game that could give Levante Taylor fits in the sense that he'll make one good play and then he'll make three or four bonehead plays so he's really got to step up the consistency of his game I don't think he's really helped his draft stock at all this year uh you know, the Clemson game could be a statement game for him because there's so much terrific uh, offensive talent there, but it could all be, it could also be a game where, you know, it basically it's, it's a nail in the coffin for uh, his draft stock as a late rounder.
0: Now we'll move from FBS receivers over to a blossoming star from the FCS ranks. And now small school wideouts, sometimes they only get one chance in a season, especially their senior season to face legitimate NFL competition. And Saturday is that chance for Rhode Island's Aaron Parker. The Rams are going to go to Virginia Tech to face the Hokies and cornerback Caleb Farley. Now, Farley, standout redshirt sophomore season so far, tied for the ACC lead with three interceptions and eight passes defended. He's got great size at 6'2", 207 pounds to go with those ball skills. Parker, though, is 6'3", 42 catches for 682 yards and six touchdowns in five games this year. Takes a lot of short passes to the house. Wins downfield at the FCS level. Doesn't really have a second gear, though. Speed is certainly a question for him. The real question for him, at least this week, can he win against a future NFL corner who has similar size and who he can't beat down like that?
1: Yeah, and Farley played really well last week against Miami, had two interceptions early in the game before Miami clawed their way back into the uh, contest. Again, he was a week six riser for me uh, in my column at Pro Football uh, Network. And, And as I said, you know, he's the next big time defensive back prospect to come from, from the Virginia tech program. And they've put a lot into the NFL. Parker's a guy that scouts like, I mean, there were some scouts that had Parker graded as a late round pick six, one and a half, 205 pounds, average speed in the sense that he's going to probably run in the, in the uh, low four fives. He stands out in the CAA, which is one of the best conferences in, uh, in division one, double a, I mean, they, they, basically always send somebody deep into the playoffs, oftentimes into the championship game, and it's different teams every year. Rhode Island's had a terrible program for a number of years. Parker uh, has piqued the scout's interest because he's a consistent pass catcher. He basically shows great focus as well as concentration. Uh, I think that Farley's the better athlete. Parker's a real good football player. Farley's a little bit unpolished in his game. Uh, And this is, like you said, I mean, this is a game for Parker to step up this is one of those games that scouts will go back and, and look at. I would expect Parker to get a Shrine game invite, potentially maybe a, uh, a combine invitation. But this is one of those games that really he can put himself on the map uh, as far as a potential late round pick, which scouts already view him as uh, against you know not only a good uh, opponent in Virginia Tech, but a, but a top cornerback a prospect in Celeb Farley.
0: Now we'll break away from the skill positions here for our final look ahead to week seven. And it's a battle in the trenches between two guys who have first round possibilities. That's Penn State pass rusher Yetur Grosmatos and Iowa right tackle Tristan Wirfs. Now Worfs is a guy that we stamped as a second rounder preseason, despite a lot of top 10 talk surrounding him. And that was mainly due to some athletic concerns. He does have great size. At 6'5", 322 pounds, strong hands in a base. Did a nice job last weekend holding Josh Uche in check in a 10-3 loss to Michigan. Showed the ability to slide off the edge a bit, recover from a quick hand punch. Uche only had one tackle, was really a non-factor in that game, and it was because of the play of Worths. Gross Matos, though, is a different tier of pass rusher. He's near the top of the Big Ten in both sacks and tackles for loss. He's a great athlete, so that's going to really test that part of Worths' game to see if he can stand up to the athleticism. Of Gross Matos. He doesn't have great bulk. So it's going to be an intriguing strength versus weakness type of matchup here.
1: Yeah. I've been really impressed with worse this year and I've moved him into the first round. I think my second round grade was as much. I just want to see him develop as opposed to whether or not he hit his ceiling and he's definitely developed. He looked terrific last week against Michigan, even though (laughs) if you look at the stats, I think Michigan had like eight sacks and 13 tackles for loss uh, in the game that they lost to the Iowa Hawkeyes. But worse is, you know, he moves relatively well. He's incredibly powerful. I love the way when I saw him against Michigan, he's able to get out to the second level and adjust and redirect to uh, take linebackers out of the game. And I think Gross Matos is going to pose a big uh, challenge for him if he lines up over uh, Worst. Because remember, Worst plays right tackle and Alaric Jack- Jackson plays the left tackle. So we'll see if they move uh, yet to uh, Gross Matos from side to side. But if he lines up over worse, his ability to get off the edge with the speed, the quickness, the balance, the body control, plays with great pad level, you know, it's going to be, can his first step and his speed off the edge exploit worse or is worse able to, you know, redirect and adjust to knock Gross Matos from his angle of attack?
0: Yeah, I'm really intrigued to see this because, as, as you said, worse has been playing well this year. I was extremely impressed with him last week. He was more or less the one player on the Iowa offensive line that was holding his own obviously you mentioned all the sacks and tackles for loss some of those obviously on Nate Stanley too who had a just a terrible game I think it was three interceptions after he had a super long streak of not throwing an interception but none of that at least in my opinion was on worth so I'm really intrigued to see these two go at each other even if it's only for 20 or 30 snaps
1: and it's that entire Penn State defense because they've got a good, uh, a solid defensive front seven and even some guys in the secondary that are solid next-level prospects. But I think in Gross, Matos, and Worse, you're definitely looking at two potential first-round picks. Is it going to be the 2020 draft? We'll have to wait and see what Worse does because if you've followed any of my stuff on Pro Football Network, you know that for a couple, a couple of weeks now, I've been reporting that I'm hearing that right now, Worst is very likely to go back to school for his senior season because he's into the academics. He likes the school, uh, the the entire college school scene. That could change. Um, If it doesn't, the offensive tackle position is obviously going to take a hit.
0: And that's it for the 90th episode of the Draft Analysts presented by the Belief Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review and feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week with another episode to go over some of the games we previewed this week and any others that stand out. And as always, we'll take our usual look ahead to the weekend's top matchups as the college football season reaches just about its halfway point. On behalf of Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi. Good night.